A month or two ago, I looked up the lectionary readings for today to see what grabbed me as a possibility for today's sermon. The options felt pretty bleak. Isaiah, <laughs> you're feeling it, right? <laughs> I think uh, if the passages didn't get you there, Christian and Gerald helped you get there. Isaiah 5 and Psalm 80 picture God devouring and laying waste to his vineyard. Jeremiah 23 describes God's word as a pulverizing hammer. We read of God's people facing torturing and stoning in Hebrews 11. Even Jesus gets pretty dark when he talks about bringing fire to the earth and division to the home in Luke 12. These are no one's go-to passages for preaching. (laughs) There's a lot of darkness, anger, and intensity here. I put off my decision, and I went about my summer. As the months have gone by, I've been noticing that I'm experiencing my own places of darkness, anger, and intensity. I've been feeling the weight of the world these days as the news seems to have reached a fever pitch. Every day, stories of violence and injustice fill our news feeds. Stories of the degradation of democracy, Empathy and our physical world roll in like waves upon waves so that I can hardly catch my breath. Poverty, violence, sex trafficking, mass shootings, dehumanizing language, racism, and white supremacy are increasingly normalized. Politicians are rolling back rights and protections for our most vulnerable among us, our children, our LGBT community, our refugees, are animals and trees and rivers. And perhaps most shocking of all, many who call themselves Christians cheer some of these things on with a kind of zeal I just can't wrap my head around. Truly, I've begun to experience firsthand the division that can come between mother and father, brother and sister, though my heart can make no more sense of it, even though I am now living it. In short, what I've been experiencing this summer is grief. I'm grieving what feels like a worldwide loss of love and tenderness, the erosion of kindness, and sometimes even my belief that these things really can change the world. What I've been needing is space to lament. Where are you, God? Where is hope in this place? What could deliverance even look like at this point when things seem so far gone? Last week, I came back to the lectionary readings and read them again. I read Psalm 82, and this time, God's anger didn't sound so scary. It sounded hopeful. God is angry at injustice? Hmm, tell me more. God judges the makers of injustice? That sounds like good news. But it's taken me a long time to get here, to hopefulness. Maybe you're not quite there yet, and that's okay. Maybe you're still lamenting. So am I. But I've told others often enough that I ought to believe it myself. Lament can be a pathway to hope. Let's see if, by God's grace, we can try to honor both of these things today. Psalm 82 is described as a plea for justice. Oh yes, Lord, we plea, we beg you to condemn injustice. Dismantle it. Reverse it. It's gotten so bad. We're so discouraged. We feel so helpless. We need you to act. 
As the Israelites try to make sense of the oppression that is happening in their own time and place, they look to familiar images. They imagine a great council in the heavens, not just God with a capital G, but all the little g gods too. God has taken his place in the divine council. In the midst of the gods, he holds judgment. It's a sort of unfamiliar language to our modern ears, but it reflects the Israelites' understanding of a heavenly host that oversees and actively participates in everything that happens on earth. There's a lot of theories about who these gods or sons of gods are, angels and demons, rulers and authorities, forces of good and evil, but it's a discussion for another day. For now, I'm going to offer a quick takeaway and move to the main theme of today's passage. First of all, it seems that God wants to share authority in some way. He lends it to these divine beings, whoever they are. This divinely bestowed authority can be upheld as justice or rebelled against, resulting in injustice. Second, we know from the whole of scripture that God gives agency not just to spiritual beings, but to human beings as well. The earthly and heavenly realms are intimately connected and intertwined in ways we can acknowledge, but not always define. When I first read this psalm in my own place and time, I have to admit I heard condemnation, not just of the spiritual forces at work behind the scenes, but condemnation of the actions of human beings as well. A few particular human beings, I might add. For today, I think we can broaden our approach to include God's words as being directed to all makers of injustice, regardless of whether they are spiritual or human, individual or corporate or even societal. So the message then is this. God calls out the makers of injustice for their failure to use their authority for its God-ordained purpose. How long will you judge unjustly and show partiality to the wicked? Here's the beginning of the good news in this passage. God sees. God sees the victims whose stories are not believed, even when there are dozens of them. God sees the boys who are killed for simply for being black, while white boys who find themselves in trouble are described as otherwise good kids. God sees the corrupt go unpunished, while the innocent are torn from their families. God sees his beloved creation trampled and degraded because of human greed. God sees. Our God is a long-suffering God, but his patience is tried when it comes to the suffering of his people. Here's the second piece of good news in this passage. God responds. God responds by calling out injustice and naming his expectations of those to whom he gives authority. Give justice to the weak and the orphan. Maintain the right of the lowly and the destitute. Rescue the weak and the needy. Deliver them from the hand of the wicked. God names those who are close to his heart, the weak and the orphan, the lowly, the destitute, the needy. Pay attention to these folks because God is attuned to their plight. God also names those who are opposed to these dear ones. They are the wicked. God is not fooled by their fancy rhetoric or their claims to care about making anything but themselves great again. Verse 5 states, they have neither understanding, knowledge nor understanding. They walk around in darkness. All the foundations of the earth are shaken. There is a clear consensus 
as to whom the psalmist is speaking about here. It could be the makers of injustice, whose darkness is their own willful blindness. Or it could be the vulnerable and the needy, whose darkness is their own despair and helplessness. Either way, one thing is clear. Injustice impacts our whole world. The foundations of the earth are shaken. This is not the way our world was meant to work. There is no stability, no security, no flourishing without justice. In a world where the heavens sing God's glories, the stones shout out in praise, and the dirt cries out against injustice, there is not one atom left unaffected by the oppression and evil of injustice. Creation groans alongside each one of us who long for the world to be made right. God sees injustice. God responds to it. God judges it. God's own voice breaks into the psalm in verse 6 with his proclamation. I say, you are gods, children of the Most High, all of you. Nevertheless, you shall die like mortals and fall like any prince. However you read this as being about fallen angels or human rulers aligned with darkness, this too is good news. The makers of injustice will not reign forever. There is a limit to their terror. Here we can broaden our perspective a bit by turning to our first reading in Revelation 18, where we hear the angel's announcement, Fallen, fallen is Babylon the Great. It was a hard passage. It was hard to read it or to hear it. I was wondering if that was a good choice or not, but this is in God's word. In this apocalyptic book and in Jewish thought, the language of Babylon does not refer to a particular historical city or nation. Rather, it's used to represent a type of city or nation. It comes from the word Babel. Remember that tower in Genesis? The one humans built after they decided they wanted to make a name for themselves, to create a separate identity for themselves apart from God. In this way, Babylon became sort of a code word to describe humanity's attempts to build a city or society without God. In Revelation, Rome stands out as one such rebellious city, but it is always just one example among many. Babylon is a way of being in the world. There's a reason God's people are always called to come out of Babylon. So what is Babylon like? We heard the ways it was described in our first reading. Babylon, personified in Revelation as a prostitute, is described as a seductive and enticing way of life that offers pleasure, luxury, and wealth to all who will pledge their allegiance. Kings, merchants, and nations are intoxicated by Babylon's power and fancy themselves powerful too. However, the angel reminds us Babylon exists only to glorify and serve itself. Luxury is the end game. All the best foods, all the finest products, all the most pleasurable experiences are within hand's reach. That is, for the privileged, anyway. With this luxury comes the lie that Babylon and all who follow its ways are indestructible. Babylon feeds on the lie that power and wealth are what matter most. Finally, and most condemning of all, for all its claims of beauty and progress and perfection, Babylon is stained with blood. It is the death place of multitudes. Behind the shiny facade, there's a hideous stench. 
For all these reasons, the angel proclaims, Babylon will become a haunt, a place of dead things and evil spirits. Babylon is not so great after all. God sees, God responds, God acts. In one hour, her judgment has come. And this too is good news. Babylon is fallen. Judgment has come. Indeed, ancient Rome fell, eventually fell. The unthinkable happened. And every new Babylon that rises up to take its place, every corrupt empire, every unjust society, every inhumane government, every grab for power by dictators and demagogues is ultimately going to fall. And this way we can say Babylon is always falling because it derives its power from evil. It just can't survive. And with God, when God withdraws, the evil is left to fold in upon itself. Pastor Daryl Johnson writes, Any city that draws its strength and authority from something other than the living God ends up being eaten by that other strength and authority. He goes on to quote scholar Earl Palmer, The greed that gave them power in time shall destroy their power. The weapons by which they conquer will, in time, conquer them. What they sowed, they will reap. So the good news is that Babylon is falling. That terrible passage in Revelation is good news to those who are experiencing injustice in our world. The more difficult news is that it hasn't completely fallen yet. This is where my lament and my hope push up against each other. People are suffering now. Injustices are intensifying now. Terrible governments are exercising terrible power now. What are we to do in the thick of things? How are we to live in such dark days? A few thoughts come to mind. First of all, we can make room for lament. Like our Israelite forebears, we can see and call out the injustices that are happening in our world. We can name oppression, racism, misogyny, and xenophobia for what they are, sin. We can name our struggles with why God allows these things to happen. We can name our anger, despair, discouragement, doubt, hopelessness, and fear. We can tell God honestly how we feel. This is the legacy of the psalmist. We can put our whole selves on the table. Here's where I'm at, God. (laughs) I don't know how to find my way through this, but maybe you do. We too can cry along with the Israelites. Rise up, O God. Judge the earth, for all the nations belong to you. Second, we can repent. As much as I started this sermon relishing the thought of blasting a few politicians and rulers with the threat of divine judgment, I couldn't quite escape the awareness that there is a Babylon mindset in me, too. I am not immune to the temptation of wealth and power. I often confuse my wants and needs and my privileges and my rights. I can fall into the lie of scarcity as much as anyone else and feel threatened by the suggestion that I should share what I have. I can proclaim radical hospitality in one breath and draw dividing lines between myself and others in the next. I like to be right. I like to win. I like to be in charge. We, too, can pray with the psalmist, Search me, O God, and know my heart. Test me and know my thoughts. See if there is any way, any wicked way in me, and lead me in the way everlasting. 
Finally, we can act. We rightly look to God for the redemption of our world. Indeed, Jesus himself is the Son of God who is saving the world even now as only he can. But this does not mean that we are simply to let go and let God, as the saying goes. The challenge is, the challenge here, and I submit to you the hope, is that in some way we are invited into this process of making right in the world. We too are agents of God's justice. We are called to be peacemakers and healers in our hurting world. We are not helpless. Rather, we are empowered by Jesus himself. Unfortunately, it's not always clear how to act. What sort of agents for justice are we to be? Are we to fight or pray, rebuke or resist? What about donating, voting, protesting, advocating? Maybe we should start a big argument with our Facebook friends and family. (laughs) There's a time and a place, my friends, but as to figuring out that perfect timing, well, go with God. This is the stuff of spiritual formation, a process of becoming more like Jesus every day. I'd like to suggest two areas of focus to guide us in our own becoming. First of all, we can look at how Jesus acted. Look at how he responded to injustice, how he critiqued religious hypocrisy and called it out. Notice how he sought out the people in the margins and befriended them and shared life with them. Remember his life of service to others. See how his life was characterized by prayer and communion with God. Jesus resisted worldly forms of power and won over the world by sacrificial love. And then, because we are not perfect as Jesus is, we can pause to examine our motivations and our character. When considering a particular response to injustice, we can ask ourselves, what is motivating us? Love and trust, or something else, like fear, worry, selfishness, desire for power, or even patriotism. We can ask ourselves, what would be produced in our character by that action? Would it look like the fruit of the Spirit in us, or would it look more like pride or self-righteousness? Ultimately, we are called to live into the belief that the love of God can defeat the powers of darkness. We are called to embody this reality in our own lives in a multitude of ways. So are we to fight, pray, rebuke, donate, resist, vote, advocate, protest, picket, tweet, or even argue? Probably at various times, yes, as God's spirit leads and hopefully as long as our motivations are noble and our character remains intact. But it might also look more subtle, more simple, like sharing a meal, befriending a stranger, offering forgiveness, starting a conversation, singing a hymn, or rocking a baby. Celebrating and enjoying the goodness of God and community is resistance. Worship of the one true God is resistance, and it will change the world. Lament, repent, act. With Jesus leading the way, let our lives and our love be the antidote to the world's pain. I'd like to close with a blessing by the Reverend Anna Gladell. Blessed are you who are raging. Blessed are you who mourn. Blessed are you who feel numb. Blessed are you who feel sick and tired. Blessed are you who refuse to turn away. 
Blessed are you who need to turn away. Blessed are you who keep breathing deep. Blessed are you who are tending to your own needs. Blessed are you who are tending to the needs of another. Blessed are you who have been calling. Blessed are you who have been organizing. Blessed are you who have been testifying. Blessed are you who have been hearing. Blessed are you who have been resisting. Blessed are you who feel broken, open, beyond repair. Blessed are you who are raw beyond words. Blessed are you who are working hotlines and crisis care centers and bearing witness to the forces of violence and trauma unleashed and unloosened. Blessed are you who are marching. Blessed are you who are weeping. Blessed are you who preach and know that divinity resides in despised, abused, violated flesh. Blessed are you who know deep in your bones that you are beloved and beautiful and sacred and worthy and held and capable of healing beyond your wildest imagination. Blessed are you who remind others of all these things. Blessed are we when we dare to dream of a world without violence, without white supremacy, without misogyny, without police brutality. Blessed are we when we stay tender. Blessed are we when we stay fierce. Blessed are we when we dare to imagine repair and transformation. Blessed are we when we labor together to make it so. Amen.